0: As this show has highlighted many times before, the crypto industry is one where the pros and cons, as well as the risk and reward, all lie in the details. For sure, the technology is complicated, and there's plenty of hyperbole, especially in frothy markets. But even when setting aside the constantly evolving nature of blockchain technologies, the rules concerning how infrastructure should be built continue to be fine-tuned, and in some instances rethought, especially as crypto assets go mainstream from Silicon Valley and Wall Street directly into investor portfolios. Now, one of the areas where you'll hear some of the most commotion is in the world of custodying crypto assets. Now, custodying crypto is central to crypto finance and the overall crypto economy. Indeed, you can't really do anything unless people can hold their money someplace, and where one person or institution holds another person's money, there are immediately a range of questions that can arise, especially in an international marketplace driven by ever-changing rules and technology. So to help bring us through all the issues, I'm delighted to have Ed Nalbanshin and Mark Rasmussen, both partners at the international law firm of Jones Day has just issued a white paper on the topic, and they'll help bring us up to speed on where things are and where custody and crypto assets may be heading.
1: This is a journey into sound. A journey which along the way will bring to you new color, new dimension, new value.
0: Ed, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you. Mark, you too as well. Thanks for hopping on. Hey, my pleasure. Nice to meet you and be with your audience. Ed, let's start with you. Uh, Custodying uh, crypto assets is really serious stuff. Um, At the heart of it all, it comes down to how a company safeguards other people's money. And there's plenty of liability that you can uh, be exposed to if you get it wrong. Uh, Nevertheless, you see major banks, uh, really legacy players like B.Y. and Mellon getting involved, who have a long tradition of safeguarding things like securities as well as crypto-native entrants like Anchorage, uh, when you sit down and, and, and think about it all and take a look at the landscape, is this institutionalization something that's been supercharged and moving at light speed? Or do you see the developments as really something that cumulatively has been a while in the making and, and, and it's really been a, a gradual uh, evolution?
2: Well, that's a good question, Chris, and I think that uh, it, it really has been an evolution as opposed to a development in light speed. And I think uh, that is really due to, and this is drawing on some of my, my experience working with the more institutional custody clients over the past thirty years. But it's really drawing on on the fact that um, global custody is probably one of if not the most traditional and state activities in banking. Um, so inherently, there's probably been uh, quite a bit of institutional resistance to, to change from the way things have been done in the past. So that, that there's a kind of overarching cultural reason probably why it's taken so much time. Uh, another reason, and probably related to that, and more specifically, is, is I think the difficulty that uh, institutional custodians have had in adapting existing securities infrastructures to to crypto assets and and this really stems from the fact that um, traditional custodial activities are, are really based on uh, assets being in a single place or in an identifiable place like a common securities depository uh, and the existing legal framework for custodians um, in essence, presumes a sort of physicality of assets. Um, whereas, of course, in the crypto world, the, the blockchain or other distributed ledger technology is, is not in a single place. So even uh, basic questions like what is the ap- applicable law when, when the situs is unclear is, is, could be problematic. And I think this uh, has given rise to um, certain caution, if not nervousness, on the part of institutional custody clients uh, to um, to sort of move, move into the crypto asset world without having a, a better understanding and better legal protections before doing so.
0: You know, I, I think that's certainly worth highlighting. There's no diplomatic immunity if you're a major custodian with billions of dollars on your balance sheet and you can face significant consequences if you lose uh, people's money due to mismanagement or a hack or, or operational risk. So what you're saying is that you know there weren't just disincentives relating to reinventing the custody wheel, um, but that legacy folks were also um, concerned with uh, uh, digital assets, something that new, introducing new kinds of risks, new risks that I would imagine, could impact everything from bank capital to front office operational practices. Um, So so just to follow that thread with me for a minute, what what does the universe of custodians look like who have traditionally provided uh, custodial services? And and what does the map look like globally? In a U.S. context, many of the
2: large well-known U.S. banks have had global custody services. You know, people like State Street Bank. Bank of New York Mellon has always been a strong, strong participant. Uh, Many of the, in in Europe, the, what are referred to as the the global European banks from Deutsche Bank, BNP Paribas, and others on the continent have also had uh, global custody services, uh, which support their trading and and, uh, derivatives businesses. Uh, On that, just when talking about some of the newer entrants into this area, it does reflect that despite talking about global custody as being a traditional estate nature, uh, type of activity, there are clearly now institutions that are looking at this in the crypto asset space and are taking up the challenge and the opportunities that they see there. And what's one of the things that's been interesting looking at In Europe, at least, the regulators have very much been encouraging banks and and institutional players to be responsive to that and try and build safe environments for crypto assets.
0: Mark, what would you add looking at the big players and obviously the upstarts? You've got the the old old traditional custody
1: providers um, that that Ed named, and then you have those companies that have sprung up since the launch of Bitcoin and their sort of native. Business model is digital asset custodianship, and and they were built from the ground up for that purpose. The traditional custodians are coming around to that. They they've got all this tremendous knowledge about how you hold custody of securities and other uh, financial products and, and customer assets, and they are um, now launching services to hold custody of, of digital assets. But you know you've got the Bitgoes, the Coinbase's, the Gemini's, the Itbits that have been born for the purpose of upholding custody. Um, uh, And so there's a a divide there, and and they're kind of converging and becoming competitors in in some respects.
0: Ed, your comments kind of struck me because I think that for better or worse, there's been a sense that in the United States, we've been pretty aggressive tackling uh, custody, especially when you look at some of the OCC's moves over the year, including its interpretive letter allowing banks to custody crypto assets. But also requiring them to consult the OCC before entering uh, the space, but you're pointing to Europe as a place where there's been a lot of action. Are our friends further along in thinking this through, or is the impetus uh, still coming from the United States? Well,
2: Chris, I think I mean we've certainly
0: seen a lot of energy here in Europe, uh, in
2: you know, kind of amongst the regulators and trying to tackle the issue uh, and. In, just generally, as well as specifically in the context of custodial arrangements. And I think it goes back to 2018 when uh, the European Commission um, published a a, a fintech action plan uh, under which it it mandated the European Banking Authority and uh, ESMA, uh, European Securities Regulator, to... um, consider a legal framework to develop a a legal framework for the wider use of uh, blockchain technology and financial services. And on the back of that initiative, um, there were two years of very active uh, consultations with market participants took place. And and that ultimately led to the uh, publication in September of last year of uh, a piece of draft legislation uh, called MECA, um, which is markets and crypto assets legislation. And, and this is a very broad-based uh, piece of legislation that's kind of designed on the back of MIFID, which is the European uh, securities legislation. And, it's, and Mika is, is designed to cover any type of uh, crypto asset that is not a uh, quote-unquote financial instrument or security, which would otherwise be, be regulated by MIFID. The topics covered are really drawn from fairly uh, conventional or traditional uh, concepts that apply to custodians, but it's there and it's, it's, it's uh, designed to facilitate the market.
0: So Mark, uh, Ed has very tactfully highlighted that uh, the Europeans have at least drafted some formal legislation and it's clearly derived from concepts uh, of, uh, the laws of custodianship. Now, I, I guess I'll jump in to add that Mika still has to be completed and formalized and that process could take, um, several years, but, uh, I, there is something there, uh, against that backdrop, how does the United States compare? Are, are we working along the same basic principles and are we as far along?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Chris. And here's how I, here's how I'm viewing it. Um, in the U.S., we're seeing very little in terms of legislation, uh, virtually nothing of, of substance at the national level. The House recently passed a bill saying it's going to, you know, there'll be a working group on how to harmonize the different regulators in this space. But, but. All legislation I'm seeing is really happening at the state level in terms of substance. And, and in particular, Wyoming has passed a slew of legislation. It, passed, it was the first state to pass a crypto custody law um, to define you know, a, a bank uh, as, or allow a bank to hold custody as a qualified custodian. You know, at the federal level, rather than seeing legislation, we're seeing regulatory guidance trickle out. And it's not even formal rulemaking often. It's more informal. Uh, whether it's SEC or FinCEN or OCC putting out informal guidance. Um, You know, last year OCC issued a letter clarifying that national banks can provide crypto custody. The SEC, I think, is still figuring out what it means to be a qualified custodian um, with respect to digital assets. So while this guidance is coming out slowly and it it is a little bit helpful, particularly for lawyers that are trying to guide clients, uh, it's not binding on the agencies, it's not binding on courts, um, but it does give us a little bit of a framework to work with. So hopefully, as time progresses, we're going to see some more concrete steps um, and, and more concrete regulation and laws that that will guide the industry.
0: Do, do you get a sense as as Ed does? You know, when, when, when talking about what Europe is doing, I mean, do, do you from what you are seeing, do you, do you get a sense that it's really just the extension of existing principles of uh, uh, of of custody? Or, or do you feel as if there are any sort of new principles that are being introduced, uh, uh, even in this guidance-making process?
1: I would answer it this way: I, I think the regulators are relying on old principles that have been around for years, and they're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole to some extent. Um, I think for this to really, for us to really advance in the space. They need to step back and think more broadly about. All right, maybe we need a totally new framework for a digital asset Um, because what we're talking about here is essentially a key pair, a public-private key pair. That's your that in in the the rights that have been sent to that public address, and that could be that could be anything. But fundamentally, that um, you know the technology is the same whether it's a a security token, a non-fungible token you know, uh, a bond type token or just a smart contract or like reward points, they all share some of the common DNA. Um, And I think our regulars need to start, you know, or they are doing this. I don't mean to say that they're not doing this, but I think as as time progresses, they're going to have to take a step back and try to figure out what a, a, a new framework
0: is for these digital assets, not just rely on the old principles. Crypto is the gift that keeps giving for nerdy law professors, in part because it introduces so many novel research questions. Uh, Like just one example, what are the obligations of a custodian if crypto assets that uh, it's holding are forked? And as a result, now they, they find themselves with two versions of the cryptocurrency. Uh, is a custodian required to return uh, to the account holder the forked cryptocurrencies along with the original cr- uh, cryptocurrency? And if so, how, how quickly must the custodian do it, especially when forks you know, spike in price like an IPO and account holders want to sell them as quickly as possible, but so- sometimes aren't able to do so uh, because their custodians haven't delivered them. Uh, you know, when you think about the, these kinds of issues, how do you approach them? How do you approach novel legal questions? Uh, and, and taking an example like forking, uh, how do you solve them?
1: I think the starting point for this is understanding the technology and what the heck a fork is or what an airdrop is or what staking gains are. Um, I'll give you an example, and it's not in the custody context, but it's, I think it's on point. We're handing an antitrust litigation down in Florida, and it arises out of the hard fork of Bitcoin Cash in 2018. And the claims there were antitrust claims. And for the court to understand whether antitrust applies, she had to understand what a fork was. So we, we went in and gave her a tutorial on what a fork is. I think the same thing has to be true for custodians and for regulars to make sure they understand in detail what it means to have a fork or an airdrop Or or a staking gain or anything else where one asset is turning into multiple assets or things are just appearing in in your public uh, key at or public address. Um, At the current time, you know regulations don't really address these these things um, in most states and in federal level. Wyoming has a statute that says uh, forks accrue to the customer, not to the custodian, unless they're otherwise agreed to in writing. So I think for for Wyoming, that's the answer for now. Um, but outside of Wyoming, without clear regulations, you got to you know, look to the contract and make sure you understand the terms of use. Um, and, and then if you're in sort of the, the retail space where a customer is, is engaged, a, a hosted wallet provider uh, to hold its, the customer's keys, make sure you know what that, that wallet provider's policy
2: is on forks and whether you, the owner, get, get the benefit of those. Chris, I might jump in and just add to that that um, one of the, you know, one aspect that we haven't talked about. We're talking about the regulatory regime, but actually, uh, custodians' duties uh, have always uh, been subject to or looked to general terms and conditions or contractual arrangements between the custodian and its customers. And I think that um, uh, as it's been done traditionally, the, I, I would think issues like how to uh, address forking, or other events uh, in 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 dealing with digital assets will also need to be covered in that in in the documentation, in general terms and conditions and and custody agreements or depository agreements.
0: That's a really interesting point, in part because you're really reaching out to and and looking at the general terms and conditions and documentation in these big deals and and big transactions. But it makes me wonder a lot about how effective disclosure may or may not be for the little guy, for the for the retail folks who need to keep their crypto assets safe in some kind of wallet. Um, just a month or two ago, we had an episode about a brilliant developer, uh, Stefan Thomas, who forgot his password uh, for his wallet and lost access to four hundred million dollars worth of Bitcoin. And um, uh, even this, I think. Uh, probably points to not only you know what safekeeping, but but larger questions of 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 insurance. Uh, I, I suppose Cipic protects against the loss of crypto assets that are legally securities held by you know uh, uh, financially troubled uh, regulated brokerages. But you know the, the, that. Extent of the law that 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 insurance, if one will, doesn't really touch crypto assets with the biggest market caps like Bitcoin and Ether that are not securities or even you know banking relationships. I know, um, that was a bit of a soliloquy there, but with all that in mind, I mean, what are your thoughts about the intersection of liability, insurance, and disclosure? It's a very interesting
2: question, Chris, and I have to say that I, in kind of coming at it from The traditional uh, custodial activities. I think the institutional custodians have generally, uh, at least in my experience, looked to the protections that they have from their contractual arrangements. So, the exculpatory language they might have in general terms and conditions or depository agreements, um, to indemnity provisions that they might have in 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 those in that documentation. So, in in terms of having uh, specific insurance to cover liabilities. It's, it's not uh, something that generally has that I have seen entering into the uh, transactional side between custo- customers and and custodians, or between say custodians and exchanges, uh, or if you had broker dealers as intermediaries. So whether um, whether digital assets uh, merit that kind of protection. Uh, is is a good question. And I, I, um, I think, I, I guess just thinking out loud, i mean, I'm thinking it will probably can be determined as to how carefully what those assets are that are being custodied, uh, how well they can be defined. I
1: can jump in there. I think the, the question of insurance is a good one. I think we're starting to see more and more uh, policies placed because it's, it's, it's really important um, to give the market peace of mind, I think. In 2018, I was appointed as a, a receiver to take over the assets of, of a company in Dallas that was doing a fraudulent ICO. And we collected several million dollars in crypto. We were trying to decide where we want to store this. And at the time, I wasn't confident or didn't know enough, I guess, about the insurance arrangements at various exchanges. And, and also, I wanted to have control of the keys because control of the keys equals control of the asset. And so, what we elected to do is just kind of hold hold the assets ourselves and be and self custody it, um, and and take all, all reasonable precautions that that we thought were appropriate. Um, but 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 that's not going to be the right solution if this if for most people, um, particularly for customers who don't understand keys and key management, there are huge risks. They need to have the comfort and peace of mind that comes with. Uh, knowing that the institutions they're using are, are are insured and have good policies and procedures, um, and then that and that gets to your question, Chris, about disclosures. Um, I, I think that's going to be critical for the for the marketplace to evolve to make sure that that you know average customers understand what it is that they're entrusting with with these service providers. I think the big institutions like your hedge funds, your private equity funds, they're um, sophisticated, and they can negotiate with the institutional custodians. Um, I'm I'm uh, sort of more focused on on the consumer, the person who buys a fraction of a Bitcoin and is trying to decide where where to host that, whether I self custody it or whether I uh, engage a, a wallet provider to do that.
0: Mark, thanks so much for joining the show. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Ed, again, great talking to you. Thank you very much, Chris. It was a pleasure. Perhaps nothing is more central or important to financial transactions than custodianship. It is the necessary prerequisite for savings, banking, trading, market making, and investing, which is why I'm struck by just how far the question of custody has come in digital assets and infrastructures, and just how much left there is to do. From anti-money laundering to capital to the basic processes and best practices for crypto custody, Plenty of issues remain to be hammered out, clarified, and in some instances, enforced. As a result, the questions raised are not those to be glossed over or minimized, but they're serious topics that will undoubtedly continue to be reviewed and revisited in the upcoming months, as much by lawyers as by the engineers building the new tools connecting crypto markets to institutions and Main Street. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer D R. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.